Well, if you're new with us, uh, we're doing a series uh, during, the, the, uh, during the weeks of Advent uh, on selected psalms, psalms that are uh, cited in the New Testament. And today we come to uh, Psalm 16, which is a song uh, that Donnie has already referred to. The kids have sung about, and that is this great theme of joy, joy that is ours now and forever. And so uh, as we prepare to uh, have a look at Psalm 16, let's pray together uh, and ask for the Lord's help. Father, we thank you again uh, for the joy we have in the gospel. We thank you for the truths that the kids have reminded us of as we've sung together. And we pray that now you would open up our eyes and our hearts to behold wonderful things uh, from your word. What we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. For Christ's name we pray. Amen. Yeah, this time of year we sing a lot of songs uh, about joy, and Scripture uh, teaches us that we should not only seek out joy in the Lord, but we're actually commanded to have it as well. We see several verses like, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Or as the psalmist says, serve the Lord with gladness. Christian joy is essential to our witness and to our worship uh, the Westminster Confession declares that it's at the very heart of our faith. The chief end of man, it says, that is the great purpose of our lives, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. But I wonder if you have a hard time singing about joy this morning. The trials of life can really be crushing. Sickness, illness, betrayal, grief, loss. And you come in a room like this and we're singing about joy. Proverbs 18, verse 14 says that a man's spirit will endure sickness, but a crushed spirit who can bear. Many of you are dealing with very hard things in this congregation. I was recently introduced to an old Merle Haggard song, If We Make It Through December, and it's become our theme song in our house. If we make it through December, everything's going to be all right, the song says. And maybe you can identify more with Merle Haggard than joy to the world today. But maybe you're not... You find it hard to experience joy because of, not because of trials, but because you're looking to the wrong source for joy. There are so many songs about longing for satisfaction, from the Rolling Stones to John Legend, people who can't seem to find satisfaction. Many turn to accomplishments, especially in this area, an area with a lot of high-capacity people. Earlier this year, uh, the Harvard Business Review had an article entitled, Why Success Can't Bring Satisfaction. And the writer says, many successful professionals struggle to enjoy their accomplishments. For example, one study found that 72% of successful entrepreneurs suffer from depression or other mental health concerns. And CEOs may be depressed at more than double the rate of public at large. Although he goes on to say, most of us intuitively know that happiness isn't realized from the pursuit of money, status, or fame. We can't stop ourselves from trying. <laughs> well, this is a powerful psalm about where joy is found. It is found in God alone. Not in success, not in stuff, not in weekend experiences, but in the God of Scripture. And maybe you would say this morning, I wish I had that joy in God. This is your psalm. And it's a joy that can be experienced, and this is most encouraging, I think, for me. It's a joy that can be experienced even in trials, because that's the context of the psalm. When David wrote this psalm, this psalm he seemed to be facing particular threat, particular danger. 
maybe out in the wilderness, maybe by those who were opposing his reign. You see the very first statement in the psalm, preserve me, protect me. Later in the psalm, he talks about struggling in the night and about how God is the one who keeps him from being shaken and that he has confidence even in the face of death uh, that the Lord will receive him. Now, if you're looking at a, a Bible, you'll notice the superscription above it says uh, a strange thing. It's a mictum of David. This is some kind of uh, obscure musical term that probably was, uh, would, would indicate how you were supposed to, to sing it. And there are six mictums in the Psalms. This one and Psalms 56 to 60. And uh, if you look at Psalms 56 to 60, the superscriptions actually show a context with the, uh, the exception of 58. In 56, it was written when uh, the Philistines seized uh, David in Gath. In Psalm 57, it was when he fled from Saul in a cave. In Psalm 59, it's when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. In Psalm 60, it's after Joab returned uh, from stri striking down 12,000 in Edom in the Valley of Salt. In other words, there's a common uh, theme or similarity in these mictums, these six psalms in the Psalter, and that is the theme of danger. It's a theme of crisis. And David is in that context writing about joy. He's in that context saying that because he had made the Lord his refuge, because he knew that the Lord was his highest good and his greatest joy, he could trust the Lord even in the face of death. So what he does here is he models for us a cheerful trust in God in the face of difficulties. If you could wrap up a gift and give it to someone, wouldn't you want to give them that this season? It's not a joy that he's writing about in a time of ease, in a time of danger and trial instead. And it's a psalm that points us to Jesus Christ, as this psalm is cited in the New Testament with reference to Jesus' resurrection, particularly uh, verse 10 when he says, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. So some have called this an Easter psalm. And I know it's Christmas, but they go together. <laughs> Christmas is good news because Easter is true. <laughs> and so Peter takes up this psalm in the Pentecost sermon in Acts 2. Paul takes up this psalm in a sermon to, uh, on the Gentile mission in Acts 13. Two monumental occasions when they wanted to reach for a text to proclaim good news they selected, among others, Psalm 16. And it's in this resurrection joy uh, today that, that we rejoice. And so let's look at it together. Uh, the psalmist teaches us by example rather than exhortation. And as we look at his example of how to have a cheerful trust in God in the face of difficulties, uh, we might outline our way through it with five lessons, five uh, truths, uh, five exhortations. The first one, verses 1 to 2, to go to God for shelter and satisfaction. Notice how he says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Preserve me or watch over me. Keep me safe. He knows he's only safe in God. So he opens with that plea to, for God to preserve him. And he's taken refuge in God. This is a, a theme that's all throughout the Psalms, isn't it? The need for the believer to find their refuge in God alone. Psalm 34, 8, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes his refuge in him. Psalm 62, 7, On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, 
my refuge is God. God is the great shelter of his people. There will be a lot of trouble in this life, but we have shelter in God. We use the term or the phrase today, that person's lived a sheltered life in a derogatory manner, don't we? Young guy doesn't know how to cook, he can't iron his clothes because his mom's always done it. We say he's lived a sheltered life. Young person's never used an outhouse, and we say hey, they've lived a very sheltered life. But here we can say positively as a believer, we're living a sheltered life. We are sheltered under God. He is our refuge, despite our trouble. And Jesus showed us this way, David's greater son, when he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So we go to God for shelter, and we go to God for satisfaction. Notice again in verse, uh, in verse 2, he says, I say to the Lord, Yahweh, you are my Lord, that is, Master, I have no good apart from you. So there's commitment to uh, the Lord when he says, you are my Lord, in effect saying, you call the shots. But there's also satisfaction in this surrender to God, isn't there? It, it's a satisfied submission to God. I want to submit my life to God because I have no good apart from him. He's our benevolent master who cares for us. He's our, our supreme treasure, our deepest delight, our highest good. I love how he's pointing out in verse 2 that God is the source of all our good. I have no good apart from you. Pastor Tony Evans says, we only have one source, God. Everything else is a resource. <laughs> it's provided by God. As we often sing in the, in the hymn, he is the fount of every blessing. Every good thing we have is owing to that fountainhead who's providing it. We only have one source, God. So if we lose our job, that's terrible. You need to find another one. We sympathize, but we haven't lost everything because we still have our God. The job is a resource. God is the source. And so he says here, we go to God for shelter and we go to God for satisfaction. Secondly, notice in verses three to four, he says that we are to delight in our fellowship with God's people. Here's one of the expressions of God's goodness to us, one of the ways in which he is the fount of every blessing. Our joy is experienced not only in God, but in God's people. As he says, as for the saints or the holy ones in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The excellent ones are, are God's people who delight in obeying God. They delight in worshiping God. And here we see a, a principle that's taught elsewhere throughout Scripture, that to delight in God is to delight in his people. Now, David sees no conflict between the two, delighting in God and delighting in his people. Love God, love people, they go together. John says, whoever loves God must also love his brother. When Paul is thinking the Colossians, he says he thanks uh, God for their faith in Jesus Christ and their love toward all the saints. Now this doesn't mean it will always be easy. We know God's people can be quite difficult. We're studying 1 Corinthians when we come back uh, from, from Christmas break. Uh, and somehow Paul could even give thanks for, for that crew. I'm reminded of uh, Linus in one of the old Peanuts cartoons after Lucy tells him that he can never be a doctor because he doesn't lo love mankind. And he says, I love mankind, it's people that I can't stand. <laughs> it's very easy, isn't it, to, to love mankind in general, but no one in particular. And, and, and the great challenge of, of the church, uh, the body life of the church sometimes, is to, is to love people who could be difficult and maybe 
I am that person at times, or you are that person at times. But here David is saying that the saints are his preferred company. He prefers the saints' joys to the unfaithful sorrows. He esteems them. In the saints, we see excellence. It may not look dazzling. Most of us won't have a Netflix documentary about our lives. We're not David Beckham or whoever the the heroes of uh, the culture are. But David says, actually, when you're looking at a saint, you're seeing the excellent ones. Because of God's incredible favor and grace on their lives. We need the saints. We need one another's encouragement. We need one another's accountability, one another's correction, one another's comfort, one another's help, one another's prayers. Without the saints, our love may grow cold. Our hearts may become cynical. Temptations may become more enticing. The world more attractive. Our grief overwhelming. I'm so thankful for the church. Last week after Kimberly came to the nine, she uh, she texted me after the 11, and she said, steak is for lunch. I'm like, you're the real MVP. <laughs> and, and when I arrived, she said, how was it? And I said, I just I love our church. I'm so encouraged by the people. What an amazing thing it is to find encouragement, think about this, from people that apart from the gospel, you probably would not even have met. And God put us together. <laughs> you see, the church is not a club. You get to pick your friends in the club. The church is a community, and God picks them for you. And what's amazing is that you find yourself in solidarity with them, people that you would otherwise not even known. You find yourself being encouraged by them and loving them. And so, my friends, the saints are one expression of God's goodness to you. And maybe you want to communicate that to a particular saint this week, saying to them, you are an expression of God's goodness to me. So he delights in the saints, and he contrasts that then with those who worship other gods. And he says that he has no interest in that because what idolatry does is simply multiply our sorrows. Notice how he says the sorrows of those who run after another god. It's like they're shopping for another god. They're running after other gods. They shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. And this is what happens if we don't turn to God as our supreme treasure, our highest good, our greatest joy, is that we will turn to other things, sometimes even good things, and try to make them God things. And all that does is it multiplies our sorrows. It's easy for us to look to other things to be a sort of functional savior for us. When there's only one place, we have no good apart from our God. And he says, those who run after other gods are unwise and unsatisfied. They're actually multiplying their sorrows. And this is how twisted sin is. Sin likes to lie to us. The evil one is the father of these lies, telling us that if we turn from God and turn to other things, that's where the real pleasure is. That's where the real joy is. And nothing could be further from the truth. Sin only brings sorrow. Only sorrow, never satisfaction. David vows then not to participate in these idolatrous practices. And it's very tempting for us. Even, you know, Paul talks about this in Romans 1, how we we love to look to created things rather than creator God as a source of our blessing. And good things will not give us what God can give us. 
in the 1830s, uh, Alex de Tocqueville recorded his famous observations on America, and he noted, quote, a strange melancholy that haunts the inhabitants in the midst of abundance. A depression in the midst of abundance. And he added, the incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. You may live in a great nation, and we should be thankful for that. You may live in a nice house, and we can be thankful for that. You might have great hair, and I'm thankful for you. <laughs> you could have all of this and still have a strange melancholy if you're looking for stuff, not the Savior, to satisfy you. We look in one direction alone. So David tells us, we have no good apart from our God. And one of the, the, the expressions of God's goodness to us are his people. So let us delight in his people. Thirdly, he teaches us in this psalm, by way of example, to be content in our circumstances. Verses 5 and 6, as he describes this, where he says, The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. You notice that bundle of terms there, portion, lot, lines, inheritance, all reminiscent of the conquest to Canaan in Joshua chapters 13 to 19. And he's, he's talking about God as his first, verse 5, his sustenance. That he's saying, you are my cup and my portion. My portion was a, a ration or something that was divided and given to you. And he's saying that what he needs most is his God. You are my portion. C.S. Lewis once quipped, he who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. We believe that if we believe God is our portion. David's primary joy is not in God's gifts, but in God himself. That's like we read elsewhere in the Psalms, Whom, whom have I in heaven but you, O Lord? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He's our portion. Or lamentations, those beautiful words, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And then it says, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, my soul says, I will hope in him. He is our portion. He's our sustenance. He's our cup. Cup is conveying this idea of comfort and strength and fellowship, a symbol of blessing, symbol of God's provision. David says elsewhere in Psalm 23 that his cup overflows, even in the presence of his enemies. And this is how we can be content in our circumstances, even when our circumstances are awful. When we remember what we need most is our God. This is how Paul could say such radical things that he said in Philippians chapter 4. His contentment was unaffected by his circumstances. He says, I know what it was like to abound and what it was like to be in poverty. He, know his contentment came, he knew his contentment came from, from Christ who strengthened him. In other words, joy doesn't depend upon fortune, but upon fellowship with God. You hold my lot. What a beautiful phrase here. That is, the Lord controls our destiny. He holds our future. And this is a good God who holds our future. So he says that the Lord is our sustenance. And in verse 6, he says the Lord is sovereign over us when he says that the lines, that is the boundary or property lines, have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I like the way the message paraphrased this. You set me up with house and yard, and then you made me your heir. What the psalmist is doing here is promoting a contentment with the arrangement of our lives. 
He helps us to see that see our lives as being providentially ordered by God, just as it was in the promised land. Andy Davis, in a new great little book on contentment, says, Christian contentment is finding delight in God's wise plan for my life and humbly allowing Him to direct me in it. So contentment doesn't mean we act passively, um, making no effort to uh, deal with uh, afflicting situations. And contentment is not to be confused with complacency. But it means that we are resting in God's wise, fatherly plans for our lives. David understands that what he has, had been given was given to him from the hand of his good God. And we know in the gospel we have a beautiful inheritance. As Jesus teaches us that the meek will inherit the earth. We will dwell with our Christ forever. Now you may look at this point in these verses and say this whole contentment stuff is really hard to believe. It's really hard to sing. And that's why we need the Bible. That's why we need the Psalms. That's why we need Psalm 16 to come and preach to our hearts day by day and to really believe that the lines have fallen for us in pleasant places. I love the old hymn that says, Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. And I love the little phrase there. Thou hast taught me to say. I have to learn that. <laughs> I have to relearn that. Contentment isn't just zapped into us. We learn it. This is exactly what Paul says in Philippians 4. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He had many experiences, but he had learned. What had he had learned? He learned that Christ was enough. That's what he had learned. We learn contentment when we learn to fix our eyes on Jesus in every circumstance. As the theologian NASCAR driver Jeff Gordon said, either you focus or you end up hitting something really hard. <laughs> that illustrates the Christian life. Either we focus on Jesus or we crash into discontentment. We crash into complaining and into deceit and greed and so on. The secret to contentment is focus, focusing our lives upon our Lord Jesus. Fourthly, we experience God's care through communion with him. He teaches us this next in verses 7 to 8. As he says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I should not be shaken. I will bless the Lord. That's the proper response to all that we have seen thus far. Because he is our good, because he is the source of our joy, because of the inheritance and because of the blessing that he has given us, we bless him, the one who also gives us counsel. He is our wonderful counselor. God gives us wisdom and counsel from his word. Psalm 119, 24, the psalmist says, Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. God's never booked up. He's always accessible. His word is always available to give us counsel. And he says, notice his heart instructs him during the night. That is to say that he is intentionally thinking on the Lord in his affliction, in his restlessness. As Psalm 1 opens up, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, 
nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law does he meditate day and night. It's in the night that we think about the Lord when our minds are running wild with anxiety. We direct our attention to the Lord. It's through this act of deliberate reflection upon the Lord that we can find peace, that we can experience his care in the midst of hardship. And then he mentions the Lord's nearness in the first part of verse 8 when he says, I have set the Lord always before me. This is a statement about God's presence being with us. He's our constant companion and our friend. He rules the cosmos, but he's in front of us, as it were. He's with us. He's always in sight. He's ever at our right hand. We never have to say to the Lord like we say to a loved one, I wish you were here. He's always before us. He's at our right hand like a child that can take the hand of a parent and walk across a busy street. He's got us. That's what David is saying. Because he's at our right hand, I will not be shaken. I can commit all things to him in these, in these troubled times. So it's in the midst of danger that David is finding this delight in God. It's in the midst of this, this restlessness and this anxiety even though his circumstances might be awful, he knows that God is not distant, that the Lord is with him. He's before him. He's beside him. And that's why sometimes you experience a very strange sense of the Lord's presence in your worst times. I was having a conversation with my friend David Platt about this, and he was talking about when his book Radical was flying off the shelves and his influence was, was uh, skyrocketing. <laughs> he said... Um, I had the hardest time even praying. He said it was one of the spiritually darkest times of my life. And he was contrasting that with some of the trials that he had experienced the last couple of years over a variety of things. And he said, I've never been closer to God. And he said, if God is the goal, I'm doing great. And if the saints know that experience, that in great affliction, you often find your greatest nearness to the Lord. And here is David saying, in the midst of my anguish, in the midst of my peril, I sense God's presence. It's like he's right in front of me. The final few verses here teach us to anticipate the fullness of joy that we will have in God's presence forever. We see the psalmist speaking of present joy in verse 9 and then looking forward to future joy in 10 and 11. In 9 he says, therefore my heart is glad. In light of everything that I've said. This psalm is so helpful because it like gives us a path to joy. Like we, we follow him in the first eight verses, very vulnerably, very transparently, communing with God, preaching these truths to our hearts that our, our fickle hearts don't want to believe, you know, in our own experience. And we finally get to a verse 9 moment. And we, they, we say, therefore my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh dwells secure. The Psalms are such a gift to us because it shows us the experience of a Christian. We get a window inside a soul. See what it is like to commune with God, what it is like to fight for joy. And that's what's happening in this Psalm. After reflecting on the security that he has in God and the satisfaction that he's found in God, he is led to joy in every aspect of his being. Because the Lord is his counselor, because the Lord is before him, because the Lord is his portion, because the Lord is his cup, 
He is made glad. And he's even provided with a sense of bodily relaxation and security. Doesn't that sound great? <laughs> My flesh even dwells secure. This guy is in some, midst, uh, some experience of danger at the threat of his own life. He's going to talk next about facing death. And he says, but my flesh can dwell secure. It's really amazing. Finally, verses 10 to 11, he turns back to God and he says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, that is the grave or the place of the dead, or let your holy one or faithful one see corruption. You will not let your holy one see decay. So David is looking to the future. And even though the saints in the Old Testament may not have had a fully developed eschatology, that is a fully developed view of the future, there, there were hints along the way that the saints believed in resurrection and eternal bodily existence. For example, Job said in Job 19, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Or as we read last week in corporate reading in uh, uh, Psalm 49, 15, God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol and he will receive me. You see, David here is confident in the Lord's power. He knows that God is not only the giver of life, but he also has power over death and the grave. He knows that God will not abandon him in death. And then he says more when he says, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. Thus far in the psalm, he's been saying, me, my, my soul, and now it shifts to your holy one. David here is speaking prophetically. He says that God will not let his holy one see corruption. I think speaking of his greater descendant, the greater David, Jesus Christ. There's a Christological promise here in Psalm 16, verse 10. Some translations highlight this by capitalizing holy one or faithful one. The Spirit of God prompted David to write about God's great redemptive plan in Jesus, the King of Psalm 2, David's greater son, Jesus. And we know what David says here became a reality in the life of Jesus. And now we have even greater reason for joy than David had because of what we understand, because of what we know. Peter cites this at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 applying it to the resurrection, this is how he says it, God raised him up, losing him from the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then he quotes these verses that we've just read and then says in Acts 2.29, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. You can go see it. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. He could say Psalm 16 is about Jesus. Verse 10 can't be about David, because if you want to pay the tour fare, you can go over and see it. <laughs> but, it but Jesus did not see corruption, because he rose from the dead. He did not experience decay, he experienced resurrection glory. And that's big news for us because we share in the victory of Christ as Christians. We have been, as Paul says, raised with Christ. Or as John says, because I live, Jesus tells us, you also will live. Or whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And if you're not a Christian, that's what we hold out to you. That's what we get so excited about around here. 
that Jesus Christ has come to give us joy now and joy forever. He's come to give us life now and everlasting life in the future. And he says in verse 11, finally, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God has graciously made known to us the path of life. He's shown us in Jesus Christ what it means to have eternal life. On one occasion, Jesus was teaching, and he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those are few who find it. There is a path to life, and it goes through a narrow gate. It goes through Jesus. And in Jesus, we experience resurrection life and everlasting joy. Fullness of joy. How much joy? He says fullness. For how long? Forever. Fullness of joy forever. This is why Paul could say something like, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For I wish that I could depart. And then he adds, for that is far better. To know God is to know not only present joy, but everlasting joy as well. So church, go to God for shelter and satisfaction. Don't look to other things to give you what only God can give you. Delight in your fellowship with God's people. They're an expression of God's goodness to you. Learn to be content in your circumstances. If we have God, we have enough. Experience care, God's care through communion with Him. Set your mind and heart on Him in the difficult uh, situations that you experience. And let's anticipate the fullness of joy in God's presence forever. For the Christian can truly say the best is yet to come. That the babe that was born in Bethlehem was eventually slain for us, but the Holy One did not see corruption. He was raised on the third day, and He guarantees our resurrection and our future glory. Christmas is good news because Easter is true. Praise be to God that it is. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We pray that this joy that we are talking about today would be an experienced reality in our hearts. I pray that we would not look to other things to give us what only you can give us. We thank you for your goodness to us, for the satisfaction and the shelter that we find in you, for the saints who continue to be an expression of God's goodness to us. Uh, we pray that uh, uh, today you would minister your word to our hearts, write its truths upon our hearts. And Lord Jesus, we recognize that all that we have today that we've been enjoying uh, came at a great cost. And we think about that now as we turn our hearts to the Lord's Supper. And may we find you afresh to be our sustenance as we experience it. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.